Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Rachna Shan Vogue, economics correspondent at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up on today's show, Vision Fund 2, the $100 billion bet. It's very difficult if you're a young firm to ignore a beast as powerful as the Vision Fund. Chickenomics. How did the chicken cross the road to become the rich world's most popular meat? And charismatic leaders. Whatever charisma is, I don't have it. Are they overrated? First up, Masayoshi Son, a Japanese tycoon, set up the Vision Fund in 2016. It raised $100 billion to invest in innovative tech startups. The fund has taken bets on all sorts of companies, including Uber and WeWork. But it hasn't been without problems. Now Massa, as he's known, is preparing to raise as much as $100 billion for a second fund. But questions still persist about how the funds are governed. Tamsin Booth is our business editor. Hello, Tamsin. Hello, thanks for having me. It's been two years since the first Vision Fund was raised. How's it gone? Well, so far, there's been a lot of spending. So the Vision Fund has um, just over $100 billion in it. The main task for the past two years has been to dole it out to deserving entrepreneurs, which is a harder task than you might expect. So far, they've either spent or promised about $70 billion of the $100 billion. And just to remind you why um, the fund is such a big deal in its universe, it's four times the biggest ever private equity fund. And what it has left now in the kitty, so about $30 billion, is four times the size of the next biggest venture capital fund, which is um, Sequoia's $8 billion global fund. So even after two years, what, what it has left is, is a vast pot of capital. And it's also worth remembering that when it was set up, its size and power provoked really a huge amount of jealousy and sort of naysaying in Silicon Valley as to its prospects. So it's fascinating to see how it has done so far. And how would you say the fund has performed? Well, of course, it's very early days because it's going to run until 2029. But so far, it's having the sort of returns um, that Masayoshi Son, its backer, really wanted to have. So it's up about... 25 to 30%. So, so far, the Vision Fund looks like it's doing very well, although, of course, it's really worth remembering that that performance is based on unlisted investments going up in valuation. There have been a couple of exits, but, of course, they will only know their true returns after they have exited um, the various bets that they've made. And in terms of performance, what's really going to count is going to be a string of expected IPOs this year, primarily that of Uber, so they're expecting to probably about double their money. They invested several billions at a valuation of around 50 billion. The Uber IPO, which is expected in the range of 80 to 100 billion or more, um, should create a fantastic return. But it hasn't happened yet. But the going hasn't been entirely smooth. That's right. It's been an extremely eventful couple of years, particularly at the end of 2018. By far the biggest investor in the Vision Fund is Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, which gave $45 billion. And that was at the behest of Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was then Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He gave Masayoshi Son $45 billion 
and other investors were then attracted into the fund along with SoftBank itself, which is Mr. Son's own Japanese telecoms and internet investing company. The murder in October 2018 of Jamal Khashoggi, a leading Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist, cast a huge pall on the on the fund itself and really provoked a lot of questions about its future. Ro Khanna, a Democrat congressman who represents a lot of Silicon Valley, actually called on startups to stop taking any money from the Vision Fund. And you do find that some startups, for instance, don't want to go and work in Saudi Arabia, even though they're in the Vision Fund. And I think there's a lot of interest in having them actually go and participate in the transformation of the economy. You'll get some very long-standing Silicon Valley investors saying that it's become a badge of honor for startups not to take Vision Fund money. However, in reality, I think that it's very difficult if you're a young firm to ignore a beast as powerful as the Vision Fund. So in, in, in reality, I think there's not that much actual fallout from the scandal. However, the reputation of the fund does remain in doubt. And the other massive event um, that had particular resonance for the Vision Fund, because of course it was coming into the tech boom at quite a late point in the cycle, and there have always been questions about you know, whether it's sort of getting in at the top of the market. The tech stock sell-off that you saw at the end of last year sort of really gave lots of ammunition to the Vision Fund's critics, and it really seemed to confirm that it had gone in at the peak. And you especially saw that when Mr. Son um, wanted to put, reportedly wanted to put another $16 billion into one of his favourite tech unicorns, which is WeWork, the co-working um, company. And in the end, he only ended up putting in $2 billion, and that didn't come from the Vision Fund. So that's, that was another sign of the sort of stresses that the Vision Fund was under at the, at the end of last year. And it's remarkable that despite those stresses, Mr. Son has still gone ahead with a second fund. What do we know about this second fund? Yes, as we report this week in The Economist, Mr. Son has recently started raising the second fund, Vision Fund 2, although we, we must add to that that no terms or structure for, for the second fund have been finalised, so it's not yet being officially marketed. But I think they are looking into options for it. And the amount of money, again, is staggering. It could be up to as much as a 100 billion fund, or it could be a little smaller. But it is remarkable to add another giant vehicle to the first one. And it's something that the investing world, I think, will be pretty staggered by. Tamsin, you've written about the governance worries to do with the fund. Tell us what your main fears for it are. It's really about Vision Fund 2 as well as Vision Fund 1. Will the second fund also take money from Saudi Arabia? And if so, how much? Because I think given the political risk around MBS, the Vision Fund 2 will have to look more broadly to other sovereign wealth funds, pension funds of different countries. And they're much more likely to really scrutinise closely the governance and the systems that they're committing billions of savers and pensioners money to. And I think that, you know, after discussing the Vision Fund's governance with a variety of experts, the worries that emerge are, number one, the, the kind of the clout and power of Masayoshi Son. Mr. Son is, a, you know, undoubtedly a brilliant investor, a brilliant marketer, but he, he does have an awful lot of power. For instance, he is one of three people on the investment committee that basically decides what the Vision Fund buys. 
and he has two SoftBank employees on it with him. And really, it's his his final decision. And, you know, we're talking about huge numbers of companies and the fund has invested in or promised money to about 70 companies. And it's an awful lot to stretch your expertise and attention on so many different companies. So I think the first thing is whether Massa has a little bit too much power at the fund. A second related issue is that there's a pattern of transfers of investments between Mr. Son's company, SoftBank, and the Vision Fund, which are rather unusual. And these happen really because Mr. Son wants to invest quickly sometimes. And the third thing is just it would be really good to see a lot more information about exactly what's being invested in and how much money is being put into each company. Tamsin, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And you can read The Economist's leader called Too Close to the Sun in this week's edition. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or dollars. Next. Chickens. Yes, chickens. We eat 65 billion chickens every year. It has become the rich world's most popular meat. But most of the birds live in cramped conditions and have a lifespan of only around 40 days. So how did chicken become the staple meat on our plates? Sarah Collinson from Economist Films reports. Chickens are the most populous bird on the planet. There are 23 billion of them at any given time. That's 10 times more than any other bird. It's an astonishing achievement for a bird that originated as a small, wild jungle bird in Southeast Asia. That's Dr Richard Thomas. We'll hear more from him in a while. Chicken is by far the fastest growing meat product, but pound for pound, the actual price of chicken has fallen sharply. I'm going to find out why. Lower Farm in Derbyshire, England, is at the forefront of a technology revolution that has drastically changed chicken farming. It's run by David Speller, who's pioneered the use of CCTV and CO2 monitors in chicken sheds. You can't get away from the scale. He's the founder and CEO of Optifarm. He works as a consultant, overseeing the raising of around 3 million chickens in the UK. There are 45,000 birds in this barn, managed by one computer. Two men will run 200,000 birds for me. It's very labour efficient. Chickens were first domesticated over 8,000 years ago. But it wasn't until the 1940s that major efforts were made to create a superbreed. The success of the contest proves conclusively that it is possible to breed chickens with superior meat-type characteristics. The Chicken of Tomorrow competition in America would change chickens forever. Dr Richard Thomas from the University of Leicester is a historian and archaeologist who has been looking into the history of chicken breeding. And the aim of that competition was to try and encourage the development of a fast-growing chicken that could provide a larger amount of protein at an affordable cost. Today, the life cycle of broilers, chickens that are made purely for their meat, is entirely predetermined, and they can only live supported by human technology. Dr Richard Thomas again. Modern industrialised farming requires the use of artificial light, artificial temperature, The whole life of these birds is effectively controlled through technology. Chickens have changed so quickly. They're four times the size they were in the 1950s. And now 
their bread more intensively, as David Speller explains. 90,000 chicks at a time get delivered. It's our job to nurture them and farm them up to a bird that's then ready to go back for processing. That starts around day 34. The biggest birds for us are for this farmer around 39 days of age. Then we have a really frantic seven to 10 days to clean everywhere, get it all nice and warm and fresh, ready for the next batch of chicks. We do that seven and a half, eight times a year. It's good value. I don't like referring to it as cheap. These are not cheap, these are animals, they have a worth. But it is great value, it is uniform, it's healthy for you and consumers love it. A barnyard chicken can live up to 10 years, showing the huge evolutionary change the broilers have undergone. The reality of farming any animal for meat is you take it to its optimal place and then you take it to turn it for human consumption. These birds, 38, 39 days, is as far as we want to take them for the product that we want to buy. But selective breeding on a global scale comes at a cost. If the chickens live beyond their planned life, they develop huge medical problems, according to Dr Richard Thomas. These birds can't then sustain that rapid weight growth beyond the point at which they're normally slaughtered because their bodies can't cope with it. And it also puts huge amounts of pressure on their internal organs as well. And there are concerns the chicken industry is relying on an increasingly small gene pool. Pretty chicks? Yes, sir. Alike as two peas in a pod. If all of these chickens have the same genetics, they're all fed the same food, they're actually very vulnerable to diseases that come in because they're all identical. So if one bird is affected, all the birds will be affected. Keeping chickens in battery cages was banned in the EU in 2012. But some people want to create better lives for broiler chickens. In terms of living space, organic and free-range do far better than intensively reared birds, where as many as 17 adult birds live in a single square metre. Organic chickens live the longest, 81 days compared to intensively reared birds, which live between 35 and 40 days. Free-range chickens get the most access to open-air runs. Now, free-range chickens might offer animals a greater quality of life, but consumers are largely driven by cost. In the average UK supermarket, an intensively farmed chicken costs several times less than its free-range or organic cousins. And that does influence the way poultry is farmed, according to David Speller. You are talking significant cost difference, and I think that's why we see the demand is not there. If the demand was there, we'd all be doing it. Over 95% of broiler chickens are intensively reared in the UK. Organic and free-range chickens make up the rest. So what's key for me in being a farmer of chicken is to understand what the consumer wants to buy. We are purely market-driven. For as long as shoppers want cheap and plentiful chicken, they will continue to be bred ever more intensively. That was Sarah Collinson reporting from Economist Films. And you can see the Chickenomics film when you subscribe to the Economist YouTube channel. Finally, charisma. In both politics and in business, it's considered to be an asset. British Prime Minister Theresa May seems to be suffering because of a lack of it. Her minister, Michael Gove, who may or may not be lining himself to be her successor, famously said... Whatever charisma is, I don't have it. That was in 2016 when he was standing as a candidate to lead the Conservative Party. 
Philip Coggan writes the Bartleby column for The Economist and certainly lights up the studio when he walks in. So you say. So it says here. Yes, absolutely. Philip, can you have too much charisma? I think if you focus entirely on charisma, it starts to look like salesmanship. So the great example for those people who have Netflix is Billy McFarland, who set up the Fire Festival, who clearly inspired investors to back his vision, talented young people to work for him and people to buy the tickets for what sounded fantastic, this festival on a deserted island in the Caribbean with, you know, top rock groups and luxury accommodation. And when they got there, it turned out to be cheese sandwiches instead of gourmet food and hurricane tents instead of villas. And the key thing is that you need some competence to carry through the charisma. And he clearly didn't have that. And so if people, when they try and appoint leaders, focus entirely on charisma, they get the wrong type of leaders. So there is a general belief among people that Charisma and competence are linked, but there's no sign of that whatsoever. And the worst news is this is particularly true of men. So there's a very good book out called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And it points out that confidence is not a sign of competence and that more men than women are overconfident and more men than women are narcissistic. And that combination tends to lead to a very bad outcome as a leader. But there must be some dangers of not being charismatic enough. Yes. So we see that at the moment, I think, with Theresa May. So she was elected as Conservative leader because she was perceived to be competent. Whether or not you think she's handled things a competent way is another matter. But her lack of inspiration is the reason that the Conservatives didn't win a majority in the 2017 election. And she has failed to carry the country with her or to persuade enough MPs to back her. And indeed, she alienated MPs with a speech just a week ago. So the problem is if you don't have any inspiring powers, then however your level of competence, then you won't get things done. And what sorts of qualities make a good leader, do you think? Well, it's not the sort of tub-thumping speeches. It's not being like Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela because, you know, that's delusions of grandeur for a leader. Instead, you should think about life as a coach more really than as the, you know, the great messiah, you need to persuade people to come along with you. And that means often listening to them, something that obviously neither Billy McFarland or Theresa May were very good at. And it also means giving them regular feedback, getting them involved in the goals that they're set. And so then people are willing to work for you. So, you know, most of us don't come in the office expecting to come out as if we've just heard, you know, a 30-minute speech from Barack Obama, we come into the office to have a vague idea of what we're going to do. And that's the ability to inspire on that minor day-to-day level is the key. Well, thank you very much, Philip. I hope that inspired you. (laughs) You certainly did. And that's all for Money Talks today. Thank you all for listening. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachna Scharnbog. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.